Read. Junk. Read. Junk. Read. Junk. Podcast. Read Junk Podcast. With your host, my guy. Hey, what's up, everybody? It's the Read Junk Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Kremko, and we're finally back with a new episode. This is the first episode of 2019, and it's with director and filmmaker Taylor Morton, who is currently filming two documentaries. Yes, two documentaries. One is Pick It Up, Scott in the 90s, and the other is The Last Blockbuster. Both movies sound awesome. Definitely uh, movies I would want to watch, and I'm definitely going to be seeing it when they come out on video. They both got funded on Kickstarter pretty quickly, too. We talk about the Scott documentary. We talk about the Blockbuster documentary. We talk about the Scott scene, Taylor being in various bands over the last 20 years, uh, touring in Japan. Uh, we talk about video stores in general and then lots of other things. I have a whole list of people that I want to interview this year, so hopefully I'll get around to doing that. This interview was done over Skype. I thought it sounded pretty good, so I'll be doing a lot more of that over Skype and maybe phone calls too sometimes when it needs to, but um, for the most part, I'll be doing this over Skype or in person. Nothing beats talking in person, but since it's so hard to get to shows and to meet up for interviews, this is the next best thing, and I can, I can get a lot more interviews done of just doing it over Skype. So let's get started. This is me and director Taylor Morton chatting over Skype. So I'm talking with Taylor, who is the director of Pick It Up, Ska in the 90s, and the last blockbuster as well. So where are you in the process of, I guess we'll start with the Ska movie first, uh, Pick It Up. So where you are with the process of right now, are you like knee deep in it? <laughs> yeah, I'm definitely knee deep in it, but we're more in post-production than in production. It's we have a rough cut. It's I think it's pretty good, and we're working in working on filling it out. You know, getting all the archival materials together, making sure we can clear all the songs we want to put in it, and uh, figuring out how we're going to release the thing. So I mean, what does it take to get? to do all the like the licensing for the the music and stuff like that do you need to like contact the bands or like the, the record labels or yes all of those things all of the above <laughs> <laughs> yeah so there's there's two sides to every song there's the the songwriting and then the publishing and so you have to clear both to put music in a movie so basically you got to get permission from the bands and then also you know whoever has their back catalog, uh, which in some cases, you know, the record labels close down and stuff gets passed around and bought by other companies. So there's some detective work to find out who even owns it. Uh, um, I mean, how does that work as far as when you want to say you want to put a movie on digital, like that stuff like that needs to be worked out, right? Yeah, we're trying to do that all at the same time. So basically, if we're, say, for example, we're going to ask less than Jake for the permission to use 30 seconds of a song, right? Yeah. In the movie. And what we have to do, there's a bunch of different licenses you can get, but because distribution is so crazy right now with all these different digital platforms and people are still buying DVDs for some reason. And you know, there's film festivals and theatrical and all these things. We have to come up with a deal that just says, Hey, it's okay to use this song in any form. Otherwise, we'd have to have 12 different deals with 50 different bands for 100 different songs, and that's 
I wouldn't be able to finish that paperwork in time to get the movie out this year. So I guess this, I was going to ask this later on, but I'm like, so who's working on the movie with you? Do you have like kind of a team or is it just you? Because it seems like it's a lot of work just for one person. <laughs> uh, there's definitely a team. There are people helping out. You know, I have other people helping editing. I do a music supervisor who's helping with, you know, that paperwork we just talked about. And, uh, I've got an animator and a graphics person and sound mixers and oh, good. there is a okay. whole team. Oh, that's good. I mean, so, so, so when did this start out? Like when did you, like, I want to make a ska documentary. Like when did I get idea get in your head? Uh, was September of 2017. I had finished another movie that year that had come out in March and, you know, had done the film festival circuit and, you know, it was out on Blu-ray, it was doing fine. And I was, I was done promoting that basically for the moment. And I, I did a Facebook post asking my friends, you know, what should I do a movie on? What should my next one be about? And most of my friends are from ska bands because I've played in ska bands for over 20 years. Okay. And so the, it was kind of the unanimous response <laughs> was, should do a ska documentary. And I said, yeah, okay, maybe we'll pick one band or, you know, one era, like one specific, like the summer of 1997 or something. Uh, and we'll get very, you know, tell a small story that is attainable. Cause it was, you know, I had only finished one feature film. And so the scope of ska music is pretty big. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 a couple decades, which I was gonna ask. Like, do you just focus on just the '90s, or like, I mean, you obviously have to go over some of the earlier stuff as well. But yeah, so we did focus on the '90s, a because I'm a '90s kid, and those are the bands I grew up listening to, and you know, playing shows with, and doing all that. Uh, but b because there's already some really good documentaries out there about you know first and second wave ska. And so there wasn't really one about this era. So yeah. we figured we'll make this. And, you know, when people ask, well, how do I get more information about Two-Tone? We can direct them to some very well-made documentaries. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's there's been like one or two, I think, around, I guess, this era. There's the Brooklyn Rocksteady one, which I know some someone that did that. But it was kind of like yeah. just specific for that area and that's what i was talking about yeah. the smaller story yeah which i would have loved to have made something like that it would have been finished by now so i not guess that that's not a big story but the scope is more attainable so i mean when you when you started doing this they're like oh no I, i'm like this is becoming a lot bigger movie than i wanted it to be or <laughs> um we set out with certain goals and you know we were kind of we didn't have any budget, so we were um, – and I say we, my good friend and bandmate for years who kind of encouraged me to make this. I said, I, I, said, I can do that. It's a huge project, but I'm only going to do it if you come on as a producer and help. So <laughs> he was with me from the beginning. And we sort of set out calling people we knew you know, from these bands and – setting up a first bunch of interviews and we didn't have any money, no budget. So we just drove up and down the West coast interviewing folks. 
And honestly, if that had been all we had done and we just put out that content, I think it would have been pretty good. There was an interesting story there. But what happened is that snowballed. You know, you you go and you meet with Angelo from Fishbone and, you know, some of the folks from, say, Ferris and Buck 09 and some of these bands, Mike Park, um, Bucket from the Toasters, and word starts to get out, you know, and all these other bands yeah. <laughs> suddenly open to the idea. Cool, you talk to this And person? that's when we decided to do the Kickstarter. <laughs> yeah. So that we could afford to go, you know, go to the East Coast and go to all these places and gather this content. Did you have a Kickstarter in mind from the beginning? Like you were like, oh, we're just going to do this? Or did, did you feel like, okay, this can be a lot bigger than, you know, than I originally wanted. So we should definitely try doing a Kickstarter? Kind of both. My first movie was a Kickstarter project and it did fine. You know, it raised, I think, $12,000, which if anybody out there has made a documentary, that is the same as raising $0. <laughs> but, um, but you couldn't even get a camera one, for that. <laughs> you can't. Actually, you can now. Well, yeah, was, I guess it, uh, if you're just shooting like DSLR or something. Right, which is what I shot my first movie on. Oh, and okay. Fine. Nikon or Canon? What's that? Nikon or Canon? Uh, at that time, it was Panasonic. Oh, it was okay. the G4, GH5 at the end of it. Okay. Um, and those are great little, you know, documentary cameras. Not so great for stills, but yeah. Um, so, I mean, were you were you surprised that you raised the money so quickly, and also that you made as much as you did? Yeah, totally surprised. We put out a goal. I think the goal was $40,000. And that was, you know, in my head, that was like, okay, we can travel and finish filming all of this. And maybe we can afford to, you know, license some of this music, some archival materials. Um, but basically, the way Kickstarter works, and people don't necessarily understand this is they take a cut. And then you're also on the hook for everything you promise people. Oh, yeah. So if you know, we raised 40000 We raised that in the first, I don't know, six days or something. Um, but that comes with, I have to make $15,000 worth of DVDs and T-shirts and things and then spend $5,000 shipping it. So 40000 is really 20000 ish Yeah. Um, which is barely enough to finish making the movie. But that's why we set that as the goal. It's just enough. And then when it started to do a lot better, it just opened up more possibilities. We, you know, expand. That's why I can afford to have people helping me here at the end to finish it yeah, instead of doing it all myself. Um, I mean, how, how do you, what do you think the reason was that it was it got so popular? Is it from bands just spreading the word of mouth? Uh, yeah, we've been super lucky to have some great support in the ska community, both from the bands and the fans. And, you know, it's, it's just been awesome to see, you know, like bands like Real Big Fish and Less Than Jake were super helpful in getting the word out when the Kickstarter was going. And that makes a huge difference. Oh yeah. And now there are thousands of people who know about this project and who are excited to see the movie when it comes out. And that's something you don't get when you make little independent documentary films. <laughs> um. So what made you want to focus on just the 90s? I, I feel like, in, or like, I mean, 
was it just like 97 that whole like that with the popularity of it and then kind of quickly crashing is that kind of focused on like what's the main focus yeah, of the movie i guess that to me was really interesting as someone who knew kind of how how we got there that there were these underground scenes all over the country and then you know every every story needs a good villain right so <laughs> um there's this whole thing about the major record labels in the 90s taking these subcultures like grunge, like ska, like pop punk, and then later emo. And they would take them and they would pluck a couple bands and skyrocket them up. And it kind of ruins the underground scene for some of the people who are a part of it. And then there was a lot of backlash. I played in ska bands, you know, in the early 2000s when it was really not cool to be in a ska band. I mean, I've always been listening so. to the ska. I, was, I mean, I, I, I saw it firsthand. I've just seen all these bands that either would change up their sound or uh, they would, or just, would just fold, you know, like, all right, we're done. <laughs> right. Yeah. And but, that's, that's a bummer. But then you look at the bands that kept playing and, yeah. and kept touring and kept putting out great music. And so it's like, I don't know, separated the wheat from the chaff a little bit. Yeah, and I've said I said this on the past uh in my podcast that I've in a way I've kind of I was glad about it because there was just so many ska bands back then that it's kind mm -hmm. of just like all the good ones are still around or, or like right. all the good ones are coming back anyway if if they're you know if there's a fan base there but um it seems like to me like lately there's just a lot more ska shows a lot more bands putting out new albums like last year there was just so many ska albums um do you think there do you think we're kind of in a fourth wave right now i mean or i don't know if it's like in quotation fourth wave but it, it seems like it right um i think the wave theory is a little bit outdated i th i think it the first and second wave have very clear delineations you know it was yeah. jamaican music and then it spread to europe and then the third wave you know what we talk about in the movie is kind of the american almost bastardization of that uh, but since music is no longer controlled by the major labels and there's this global you know connected internet community everything feels much more like a slow and steady evolution and it's not like there was ever a time since the third wave exploded that there wasn't ska music. It's been around this whole time and it's been changing slowly and, you know, people put out new records and, and all these things. And there's new bands all the time that are doing really cool stuff, but it's like, you know, it all falls under the umbrella of ska, but there's bands out there that are playing super traditional, you know, rock steady right now yeah i've been seeing a that, lot of bands rocksteady especially uh coming yeah out of is that what are we calling that that can't be fourth wave that's like first wave ish <laughs> fourth is fourth first ish <laughs> yeah so i think i think the wave idea is is kind of over if if you ask me but there's a lot of people touting the fourth wave and it is pretty cool we got super lucky that all this ska stuff is even happening because, you know, when we started the project back in 2017, there were no back to the beach festivals. There were no, you know, interrupters on top 10 billboard charts. 
there was no ska in the mainstream. It was still like a weird thing to make a documentary about. And so the fact that it did have this big kind of resurgence last year, but it's a lot of nostalgia based resurgence. It's part of my uh, podcast. It's huge for us. <laughs> yeah. It's huge for us. We couldn't have, it couldn't have worked out better. You know, when, when they announced Back to the Beach, we said, oh, we can fly to one place and interview all these bands because they're all yeah. going to be there the same weekend. That was, that was an insane festival, which I wish I saw that, but I didn't since I'm not on the West Coast. Yeah. <laughs> but you, well, then we went over to Supernova right. as well, which was also amazing and had, you know, folks from the Scatolites and the Specials and Suicide Machines and MU330 and all these great bands, Spring Hill Jack. It was awesome. Um, you went down, you flew over to like Japan and stuff too, right? Yeah, that was not on the Kickstarter backers okay. dime. That was, um, my yeah, producer lives over there oh, okay. and my, uh, the ska band I played in, we were, um, we toured Japan a lot in the early two thousands when Japan still thought ska was cool after America didn't. Uh, and so I wanted to go there my wife and I just on vacation, but when we were there, we also did meet up with um, folks from Kamuri and Tokyo Ska Paradise Orchestra. Nice. For two of the bigger, yeah, you know, '90s ska bands over there, just to get that perspective. Yeah, I mean that's that scene over there is huge. Um, it's a shame you couldn't get like I don't know if you interviewed anyone from like South America, or, like Mexico, like because it seems like the yes. Spanish ska scene was is is really big right now too, and it has been yeah. keeping it alive. We did, and it's um, I'm actually that was done remotely because I don't speak Spanish. Um, yeah, <laughs> so that's coming in. I'm getting the translations now, but we're we're definitely including that aspect because you know, like you said, that's been huge. You know, since. For like since the early '90s, and yeah. it's just been growing and growing. And that, to those other countries, it's not like this weird niche music like it is here. It's just music. It plays on the radio in between other pop songs. That's gonna be weird. <laughs> right? um, like if you just, I mean, that's what's happening now. Though, with look at the Interrupters, and their single is playing in between. You know, Imagine Dragons and whatever else. I don't listen to the radio, so I, I mean, I, I, but I, I, I can tell just from how how big they've gotten. They've like they had their song in a Michael Moore documentary, and mm-hmm. you know things like that. So it's definitely the Tim Armstrong push is, uh, and now I think Rap Boy I think's probably going to be the next one that's going to be kind of getting big over here. But I don't know. I can't really describe what kind of style <laughs> he is, but um, it's got some scars, yeah. I guess, but. More like hip hop. Yeah, punk. and that's yeah. that's like what I was talking about with Fourth Wave. It's like there's so much music out there that has some ska to it, yeah. a little. Like you can tell the artists now grew up listening to it, but it doesn't necessarily, you know, like the skins. Have, like that's like a really yeah, like the skins. That's a perfect example because it's like they have one song's punk. Like their new single is it's like starts out on nice reggae and then it's like gets all yeah, and then those punk. guitars come in. Yeah, it's crazy. Such I'm like oh, finally some new music. <laughs> that was cool though. Um, I like that they just went full '90s like grunge guitar. Yeah. Whoa, I, where did that come from? What come from? Oh, the the, the grunge <laughs> the oh. guitar. <laughs> okay. I thought someone was going over the video. Um, 
Did you get, uh, so you interviewed a bunch of bands. Did you interview anybody that was like in the ska scene, just like fans, like celebrities or comedians or anything like that? Uh, yeah, we did a little bit of that. Uh, I wanted to keep it primarily, you know, an oral history as told by the, the bands. But what we did, you know, I look at it as if I'm going to get a fan from the 90s, why not get the folks from the Interrupters? Because they were fans in the 90s. Right. You know, the Suburban Legends guys were fans of the other Orange County bands before they were a band. So that's kind of the route we went with that is talking to some of the younger bands. And I like that I just called the Suburban Legends a younger band. They've been playing for 25 years. (laughs) Wait, the Interrupters have? No, no, Suburban Legends. Oh, sorry, sorry. <laughs> After started in 2011. Yeah, I was like, well, like I thought they were a new band. <laughs> um, no, and like folks like Jeff Rosenstock and right. uh, people like that, people who are fans. But, you know, we reached out to a lot, and surprisingly, celebrities who are famous for liking ska, not so hip to talk about it. <laughs> oh, it's, it's still not quite cool enough to be like Oscar Isaac. And okay, I know <laughs> we did reach out to him, and I think he's busy doing some kind of Star War thing. Oh yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, he said. Uh, now he said something nice. He sent us a note back. Like, oh, did he? Oh, you know, nice. sounds like a cool project, and wish I had time or something like that. I was I was seeing I was seeing a show in the city with. Um, with my wife like two or three years ago and it was for Alan Doyle of Great Big Sea, like, uh, you know, Canadian folk. Um, mm-hmm. But all of a sudden, like, he showed, uh, o- Oscar Isaac shows up <laughs> and he, like, <laughs> sang one of the songs because I guess Alan Doyle wrote the song that he did for one of those movies where he sings in it. Not the, not the one that was popular, but it was, like, one with, like, Channing Tatum in it and stuff. But he sang that song and now it's, like, uh, it's like that in the Bob Dylan song that he did, but uh, yeah, it was really like a nice surprise. And like I'm like I didn't never I didn't know he's sung anything, <laughs> and then and then he was on yeah. Jimmy Kimmel and said that he's like oh uh, in ska bands, which I guess is on YouTube. Yeah. Um, I saw I saw some people like on Reddit. I think when you, when the movie was announced, uh, your movie, uh, that it was gonna be focused like oh it's like oh there's gonna be talking about West Coast. I mean it seems like right. you're gonna be interviewing a lot of other you know, East coast and Midwest and stuff too. Right. Yeah. So that's a big thing we're trying to work around and I live on the West coast. I live in Oregon. And so part of that is access. And so early on, you know, our first trailer is mostly West coast because we couldn't afford to fly anywhere. Yeah. Uh, but also it's just, it comes down to, I don't know accessibility east coast bands seem to be always out working touring (laughs) like actually doing it and the west coast bands maybe have a little bit more time to sit down and chat or uh things like that but we're trying our best to keep it real balanced and talk about not just the east coast and the west coast but also like the midwest bands and you know we talked to uh muster plug yeah, Muster Plugs in it. We talked to Rory from The Impossibles. That's a Texas band. There's no Texas ska bands. Come on. Yes, there's the suspects. There's a few. <laughs> yes, yes, there are several. But you know what I mean? We're yeah. we're trying. And then in the edit, I'm trying to make sure it's not 
too Orange County heavy, but you also have to look at, you know, from a mainstream story perspective, all the songs that hit the radio, except for really the Boston's were from the West Coast. Right. That's true. And, and I wonder so, why that was. I mean, what do you think it was just like K-Rock or something like that? Just heard them at shows. I, I mean, I wonder if you watch the movie, you might see why that was. Oh, <laughs> one of our main questions is, <laughs> is why only this handful of bands and why, you know, you talk to people like Bucket from the Toasters and they were working so hard before, during and after all these other bands getting huge on the radio. And it really is just like a, a why, a big like why yeah why these few bands from this one area but you know you can draw a parallel too to like seattle and grunge why were four of the biggest eight grunge bands from the same city yeah it's like maybe just the old saying of who you know i guess (laughs) right well you got to think about you know especially in terms of like Real Big Fish and Save Ferris are a good example because Real Big Fish was out doing it and they were on the radio as Save Ferris was was coming up, but they would play a lot of shows together. And so you get that fan base. Yeah. And it's just, it's not like piggybacking, but it, it kind of is. You know, if you're the band, if you're the grunge band that was always opening for Nirvana, well then all of a sudden... I don't know who that was, maybe Pearl Jam or something, but yeah, it was that's four big grunge bands. <laughs> like proximity effect, you know? Like yeah. You're in a bubble, the bubble gets big, you get lifted up with it. Yeah, I mean, parts of it is too is like Warped Tour, like gave exposure to mm-hmm. a lot of bands, 120 minutes. I, you know, that's a lot of ska bands, like, but even like the Toasters, I think. Um, well, I think I was a Toasters fan before that, but. Other yeah. Scott bands and, and even punk bands too for like on 120 minutes. That was I would have to tape that because I would never be up. And uh, oh, me too. Yeah. So it's <laughs> we were so stuck. We got Matt Pinfield in the movie. Nice. Talked about you know he loved all those ska bands and and he really helped a lot of them get their first MTV breaks. You know, like the first time they would play Buck 09 or Rancid's uh, Time Bomb stuff like that. It was all you know, 120 minutes because yeah. MTV was playing Nirvana all the time. And it took people like people like Matt Pinfield to open us up to it. And then later they had that MTV Scotter day and oh, yeah. Carson Daly, like a quote unquote rude boy. I'm sure you're going to show that in the movie, right? The expert. Oh, we can't not show it. It's too funny. <laughs> it's like the prime example of what went wrong. And I'm sure there's other examples out there, like on just re- regular talk shows of just yeah, cringy I interviews. Mean, we found some local news clips of people just, this ska music, I don't know. <laughs> These kids and they're dancing and their goofy hair. So so you said you've been in like ska bands for 20 years. I really don't know too much about what, what bands you've been. I, th- I know that you were thinking Party Like It Is band party like it's oh, yeah party that like was it's. uh yeah, sorry <laughs> that's like a ska cover band i was doing for a while yeah. in dc and they're still playing but i moved back out west okay yeah uh, i was gonna wonder mike mike you're from west coast but they're a dc band <laughs> yeah i started that band with um 
with my buddy Morgan from uh, Eastern Standard Time, the sax player. Okay. And we, we just, we had this idea we wanted to do, you know, like a me first in the gimme gimme's, but ska, kind of like what the ska tune network guy is doing. And Root Boy George but, too, but they're doing all ages. And Root Boy George. Yep. Yes. Um, and we were trying to do that and we did, and then we just started, you know, playing. DC is a big cover band scene. Yeah. So we played a lot and we were making decent money and then we did some originals and I'll probably put some in the soundtrack of my movie because I can license it for free, uh, stuff like that. Hey, it's, it's a good benefit. <laughs> did you guys have an album though? Or was uh, it, no, it was we all got YouTube. some songs on, on Bandcamp and some stuff on YouTube. Covers on YouTube, some originals on Bandcamp. Because they sounded um, great, but I'm like, I don't know if they ever had a, an album came, come out. No, well, we did one that we put out in Japan. Oh, okay. <laughs> Super limited. We just, I wanted to tour Japan again. So we booked a tour and made like a, I think it was like a 10 song thing, half covers, half originals. Um, so, so what other bands have you been in? Um, let's see, back to the nineties, I played in a Eugene, Oregon band called 007. Okay. And then I played in a Eugene, Oregon band called the Varicoasters. And you played trumpet? Yeah. Okay. Mostly trumpet, a little bit of keyboards, okay. a little bit of singing and guitars when needed. So how- and oh. those two bands, we would open, you know, like the, the Safe Ferris, the Five Iron Frenzy, the Real Big Fish shows. And then started this band called Pocket Face after all these other bands broke up. And that's the band that got signed in Japan and we went and toured there. Uh, 2001 through 2004 or something. That's got to be surreal, like getting signed to a, a Japanese label and just like, oh, we're going to go to Japan for a couple weeks to tour. I don't know. It's Yeah. It seems like... It was very surreal. Yeah. And I was, let's see, I was 20 years old at that time. Well, that's like perfect. And so, yeah, and, you know, we were coming right out of, you know, Real Big Fish's second album had hit and say Ferris's second album had hit and we all thought, oh, Ska's over. Cheer Up was about to come out and be just a rock album. <laughs> Stuff like that was happening. And But Japan was still into it. Yeah. And we did that. And my first show over there, uh, we played this giant music festival, like a ska and punk, almost like a back to the beach thing. Okay. So we got off the plane. You know, I don't, think our record was out but it might have been out like in tower records and stuff and we played this festival you know with like 20 other bands or something super jet lag get off the plane and we get on stage and there's like twelve thousand people right there wow all going crazy and it was just that was it i was like i want to tour japan as often as i can for the rest of my life so what happened it uh, <laughs> Well, we did for a few years, and then, as most Scott people know, it's almost impossible to keep seven or eight people together. Yeah. And so me and the drummer started like a kind of not-that-good pop-punk band <laughs> just so we could keep doing that. Yeah. We put out a record in Japan also, and we kept doing that. And I was doing that off and on through like 2009, 2010. And then moved to D.C. and started playing uh, 
playing in ska bands again, playing trumpet. So, I mean, when did you get into, uh, like, directing and stuff like that? Did you do, like, do music videos first and then kind of yep. gradually did into features? Yep. Yeah, I was doing music videos and commercials and really boring Washington, D.C. corporate, you know, go film at the Senate and somebody says something and they just need it on camera. It doesn't have to look good, that kind of stuff. Did you go, uh, uh, go to school for it? Kind of. Okay. I went to school for uh, advertising-ish, digital arts. Ah, okay. I was kind of well digital arts, but web design. And yeah, I arts. took web design classes. I took, you know, I, traditional art classes. And I took a film filmmaking course, and man, that was like that was I was like at first like yeah, I'm really gonna like this, and man, I hated it by the end of it. Oh, <laughs> uh, I loved it, but then I didn't think it was gonna go anywhere. Yeah. And I got out of college and I got into flash animation because it was the early 2000s. Yeah, me too. I mean, yeah, I did that. Sweet. Yeah, it was the thing. And I rode that all the way until Apple said they're not going to support flash anymore and it killed the format. Website still happening now. It drives me crazy. Yeah. <laughs> but that was also when like the Canon 5D Mark II came out. Right. And we all decided, oh, anyone can be a filmmaker now. It's attainable. And so I kind of transitioned straight from flash animation to film just as the internet was getting fast enough to, you know, YouTube was getting really big and video was replacing flash. So. Well, now it's HTML5, I I guess, but. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And then when I moved back to Oregon from Washington, D.C., there was no commercial work. I moved to a small town, which is where the last blockbuster is. So you're in Bend, Oregon? That's, do you know Larry and his flask? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm like, everybody does. Well, it's a small town. Yeah. Well, I was wondering because I was like, I was like looking up where you live or where the last blockbuster is. And I'm like, oh, that's Larry and his flask. They live there too. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. They're nice guys. I, uh, I filmed, I filmed them doing like an accession once in the, in, oh, nice. in the city. So yeah, that's like, I used, I used to do like an acoustic session website called before the concert and then. They were like only the second or third person that I filmed, but that was it's still the most watched video. Um, oh, very cool! Yeah, because they're just I mean they yeah, do I've only met the them a couple times. Yeah, but they're very nice. Yeah, everybody it's... here is very nice. You know, the only the only real downside is that it's a little bit smaller of a town and it's all white people. Yeah, that's it's a little bit of a bummer. It's one of those small Oregon towns that hasn't quite caught up. You know, a lot, of, uh, a lot of pickup trucks, shotguns and stuff like but that. But I guess it's a good transition to talk about your other documentary. Like you're not like you're not busy enough. <laughs> right. So so now you're doing the last blockbuster. And yes, and that's you also did that for Kickstarter as well, as well. Right. Yeah. So that was I also started that one in 2017, but I thought I had plenty of time. You know, I moved here and drove by the sign that said Blockbuster, and I thought, that's weird. They haven't taken the sign down yet. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because in other towns, that's a real thing. You'll see a Blockbuster sign, and you'll go, and it'll be an abandoned place, or it'll be a dry cleaner. Because yeah. It's never still a Blockbuster. And I went in, and they, it was like nothing had changed. It was like 2002 or something. Um. Everything, it smelled the same, it felt the same, 
Did it still have VHS or was it DVD? <laughs> uh, it's all DVD. They have a little bit of Blu-ray, okay. but it's mostly DVD, which drives me nuts. As a filmmaker, I'm like, why don't you stock Blu-rays? People can play them. It's, well, I, I'm always bitching when I'm reviewing uh, movies is that they still send me DVDs. Like they're still producing DVDs uh, where right. everything is on yeah. HD now. It's like, stop it, you cheap fucks. <laughs> right. And I got a bunch of friends, you know, who get like for your consideration screeners for the Oscars and the yeah. Emmys and things like that. And yeah. they're all on DVD. Yeah. Like, and it's like, what? what is wrong with you? Just send people a digital code. Yeah. Nobody like, has time to watch like a 720 or 480p d- video disc. Ugh. Yeah, it's, anyway. it drives me crazy. <laughs> yeah, but like along those same lines, we're putting out the blockbuster movie on VHS because we don't care. It's retro. You got to go with it. It's retro. <laughs> There's something about putting a movie about blockbuster in a blockbuster clamshell case yeah. and then having it available for rent at blockbuster. And you'll Very see it meta. in the used bin somewhere else. <laughs> Oh God, I hope so. Um, so to put this movie out and then see it like in the DVD section at Goodwill, which is where we found all our blockbuster movies that we're using. Oh wow, um, that'd be amazing. So, so you went in the store and like, oh, I need to make a movie about this being, or you just like, it was well, the one that closed down in Alaska, and then there was only like one or two, and then yeah, so now it's the last. So what now I did really is I the last started. Yeah, I started filming at the one here in Bend because I lived here and I had free time. I just talked to the owner and the manager and they're lovely people. The owner has run this store since the early 90s. It was an independent thing and then it got turned into a blockbuster and now has outlasted all the rest. But um, at that time, there were still 12 blockbusters left. Wow. So... I thought, oh, that's fine. I'll just film here and see what happens, you know, documentary style. Yep. Check in every couple months and see how they're doing. My main question was always like, who are these people that are still renting movies? Even in 2017, now it's 2019. Well, did you go like gorilla and, style and go out when they're coming out of the store and go, what'd you buy? What'd you yes. buy? <laughs> yeah. What'd you get? Why are you here? Have you heard who of are- Voodoo or Google or yeah. iTunes? <laughs> yeah. Um, And then last summer, right in the middle of filming the Sky movie, you know, just got back from Back to the Beach. I'm starting to cut all this stuff and I've done a big shoot with the Aquabats and all this stuff. And I'm like, all right, I'm super busy. We'll just never get back to this blockbuster thing. And then I got an email, I think, from the manager letting me know that the Alaska stores were closing and they were going to be the last one. And that a lot of people were calling about doing a documentary. Oh. And I said, Oh, we already started. Can we have first dibs? So we drew up some paperwork and got our claim on it. Do you have to file and that at the copyright office or something or? No, we just got the, the story rights from the people involved. Okay. You know, basically like you sign this thing and you won't tell other people your story. Right. So when other people come and want to do a movie, they can – I can't stop people from filming the outside of the building or even you know, telling a story about Blockbuster. But yeah. I can protect basically the relationship we built over a year and a half, So, which was just luck. You know, If the Alaska store had been the last one, I wouldn't have any story to tell. 
Yeah, I mean, would you just scrap the whole project then? I was ready to, yeah. Yeah. Um, and we jumped into the Kickstarter more, you know, to stake a claim and get a public thing out there saying, hey, we're making this. And it's it did its job really well in that regard. Yeah. We didn't raise that much money compared to the Ska movie, but what we did raise is awareness and we got a lot of, you know, sort of outside investors and help and other production companies wanting to jump on board so that I don't have to do it all myself because I'm a little bit busy. Yeah, just just a little bit. Um, <laughs> do, is it more of a focus on Blockbuster or is it in video stores in general? Because it's it, it, that's like a documentary in, a, in and of itself. You know, just the video right. stores. Of and all there are them. some of those that are really good. You know, there's documentaries about VHS, how it changed the media landscape, and there's indie indie movie store documentaries. What we're doing is we're using this store and how it was independent, got sort of not forced but pressured into becoming a blockbuster. That sounds about right. And then and then all the rest closed, and now this little independent store. You know, there's some irony there, of like. The big guy comes in and crushes the little guy, but then they outlast the big guy. You know, it's probably going to happen crumbling. with Amazon, right? <laughs> you know, that's what people keep saying. They say this is all cyclical and it's all happened before and it'll happen again. There's an Amazon bookstore by me in Garden State Plaza Mall in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I just find it ironic that they drove all these other bookstores out of business and now they have their own bookstore like you guys are a bunch of douches but i'll still go to the store (laughs) right yeah it's kind of like that yeah so we're using that as like a lens we're also going to tell the corporate blockbuster story how they grew so quickly and why they went out of business and uh we're sprinkling in a bunch of celebrity anecdotes about renting movies to keep it entertaining yeah i saw that you're interviewing a few comedians this week yeah um, yeah, we want to keep it funny and like lighthearted because the business story is, you know, it's interesting, yeah. but it's not, I wouldn't call it entertaining. So it helps if you throw in, you know, it was kind of comedians. similar to, to Colin Hanks, um, movie about tower, tower records. It was kind of like it's entertaining. Very simple. Yeah. 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 <laughs> From a premise standpoint, his is more business focused, you know, ours, we're going to really kind of dive into the characters, the people who work at this last store and the people who shop there. Do you, it's a little bit, did anyone have any stories about like how they like any techniques of how to get a video at the store, like try to hide it behind other movies? I I remember doing that. (laughs) Yeah. But I didn't have, and then we had, we had some celebrities talk about going in and like moving their movie to the front. (laughs) (laughs) I think Jamie Kennedy talked about how on for Scream he's not on the front cover but he's on the back so he would go in and flip them all over. That's funny. <laughs> <laughs> or you know, asshole kids like myself would go put like like the porn movies behind other like children movies or something like that so the parents grab the wrong. Yeah, ones. that's a, a big topic too because Blockbuster never had an adult section. Well, I guess in video stores in general, yeah, because I didn't have a blockbuster right. for me um, until like oh. later on, and I was like, and it was like twenty twenty five minutes away. So when all the other stores didn't have it, I would have to go. All right, let's make the trek up there. So it's got to have it. But then it was like more money, I think, or then like yeah, late fees. Yeah, blockbuster and, was always more expensive, and you'd always have late fees. So it's like, ah, oh, do I really want to pay 
eighteen dollars in late fees just so I can <laughs> Die Hard Four. It's not even that good. <laughs> did Did you talk to anybody that had like the longest or like the most expensive late fee? Like, like have you tried figuring that out? Uh, no, that's a good topic for research. I'm sure yeah. it's public information somewhere. But I wonder if I mean I think at some point people just like gave up and then just kept it and then go back to the store. Yeah, I mean we I think we were just talking to Ron Funches, you know, the comedian. Yes. Yeah. And he was talking about how the store near him, you know, just five years ago when they all went out of business, had a going out of business sale and instead of buying movies and video games, he just rented a bunch and waited. <laughs> and then they went out of business. So he never had to bring them back. That's funny. So he wins. It was a good strategy. If you ever see a video store going out of business, don't buy them, just rent them. And you get them for 99 cents. Or in my case, just start up a movie website uh, that re- reviews movies and then get them for and free that way. They get mailed to you. Yeah. <laughs> Why do you think that I've been is... doing my website for 20, 20 plus years? It's like I get free movies and albums. So it's, so it's, I mean, it's a good scam. It's a really good scam. I'm a fan. <laughs> um, did you interview anybody that worked for the store that they just they just um they just wanted to work at the store so they can get all the movies for uh earlier and then keep them late later and i feel oh, like yeah. there's some that employees was, like um, that yeah uh paul Shear from yep. veep and disaster artist and stuff like that he worked at blockbuster for a while before he was on tv and he definitely was doing it so that he could get the movies early and the video games early. And he would like, um, you know, get them in shrink wrapped, open them, watch them or make a copy or something and then re shrink wrap them and put them back on the shelf. <laughs> this is a, a great trick. If you work in retail. Wow. I did not know that. Um, I play video games for the whole weekend before they come out and then shrink wrap them and put them back on the shelf. That used to drive me crazy, like getting to that store and just nothing would be there, like that I wanted. It's even when I called ahead, like sometimes it would just nothing would be there when I like I just called five minutes ago. Well, someone took them. Yeah, <laughs> and then you got to have them go check the Dropbox. Yeah, see if somebody just dropped it off. Is there anything I just in did the back? That yesterday, <laughs> yesterday I went to Blockbuster because I go there often now. Yeah, and they have, you know that. Neil Armstrong movie, First Man. Yeah, I just saw that. This yeah. came out. Yeah. And yeah, like always, they have like 50 copies on DVD, but they only have five Blu-rays or whatever. Why? <laughs> They're always out. Well, because Bend is not the most technologically advanced town. Um, and it was all out, but I had him check the Dropbox and there was one Blu-ray in there. So. Oh, the tricked work. But um, I had forgotten about the trick. The guy at the counter had to remind me because... You know, yeah. I haven't used that since 2002 or something. I think people are really going to like this movie just because of the, just not just Blockbuster, Blockbuster, but also just video stores in general. Where like mine was Joe's Video. Uh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I but, love it. But I think, but I think people, I think you got a good documentary on your hands. I mean, um, I'm going to say, do you think video stores are going to make a comeback? Or do you, like the way vinyl has been coming back, like with some record stores, or you think it'll be like, you know, we've been talking to people about that, and nobody thinks that it will really. It's very, it's 
like a novelty thing because yeah. the video version of vinyl is VHS. And whereas vinyl has like a nice sound quality to it, it's, you know, people like it. You can get a good hi-fi system. It's a visual experience. VHS is terrible yeah. to watch a movie on. You know, I've been doing it for the last couple of weeks. <laughs> for the movie, I set up a VCR and I got an old TV and I'm putting in videotapes and it's just excruciating. The oh, quality yeah. is so bad and the lines in the video and I have a, yeah, I still have a VCR as well because I I still have some ska bootlegs so I've been kind of I, I put them oh, all yeah. on you on YouTube but uh, yeah I've been digitizing stuff like that and it's like even that process because you have to do it in real time is yes. so annoying yeah. <laughs> So the, and, I don't know if it'll ever come back because of that, but there's a huge VHS collector's market and like there are certain movies that will never come out. Those Disney ones are just rare gems. Those ones yeah, with the white, or like the white weird, cases or like those ones. Yeah. Or like indie movies that just, you know, they never got distribution past VHS. No one's ever going to digitize it. And you find this weird you know, knock off Gremlins copy movie. <laughs> it's just like, I have to watch this. This is crazy fascinating. I'm sure if there's going to be a VHS store, that's going to be in like Williamsburg or somewhere. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Portland. <laughs> rough, rough trade. Sure. Rough trade is going to open up a spinoff store. Uh, totally. <laughs> now, speaking of VHS, is there a, like a VHS cover that you think really stands out or maybe even something in the back? Uh, the back of the cover that that was like an iconic videotape. Oh man, I've been looking at them more lately, and I think you know, like I said, I'm a I'm a '90s kid, but yeah. VHS was more of an '80s thing for me. Um, it's tough. Those original, like the Star Wars boxes with the paintings on them, right before yeah. they read them. From Drew, those Drew Stodden, Stodden, yeah, well, yeah, yeah, those are iconic. I mean, I didn't know too many people who didn't have those in their house oh, when yeah. we were kids. I, and then, like the ones, let's see, what do I have here in this pile of VHS? I, I remember feel like the cover to Porky's is pretty iconic. Yeah, that's an iconic one. Yeah, ET, Empire Records, ET, yeah, ET is huge. ET and Jaws, yeah. Oh, Spielberg. Fast Times, Ridgemont High. <laughs> Fast Times, yes. Terminator and Terminator 2. Oh, yeah, T2. That was... I remember that seeing... Was great, but that was the, the thing. is like the box art was such a big part of it. Yeah. Because you didn't have anything else to go off of. Now people stand in Blockbuster and they like look up reviews of the movies and check to make sure it's not on Netflix before they rent it. Yeah, I mean, because before that it was like, oh, the employees pick of what, what movies they liked, and that's what that's what you had to go by. That was the early Rotten Tomatoes, <laughs> right? Well, you used to—that's a big thing for our movies. You used to have to interact with people, and now it's a computer that tells you, you know, oh, you you like Terminator Two? You'll probably also like this. As we're speaking over the video, <laughs> and not in person, right? But you used to have to. Ask the person at the store, hey, I really like Terminator 2. What else might I like? And they'll say, you know, oh, you'll really like Debbie whatever, does Die Hard. <laughs> Debbie does Dallas, sure. If you work, if you work this way, clerks. Say, 
oh, I don't like that one and work it out. Yeah. Or they'll be like, well, did you like it because of, you know, Schwarzenegger? Because we also have Commando or whatever. Oh, Commando. That was such a good one. <laughs> but now it's all algorithms. They still have an employee section at the Blockbuster here. Oh, yeah. Which is, How which makes- is really fun. It almost makes me want to work there. Is it just like a few people or just one person's picks? Uh, I think the managers each get one. So okay. I think they have two managers right now and there's two staff pick and caps. But it's just like, I don't know. I always wanted to work at a video store and I never got to. So this is the closest I'll probably ever get. I wanted to work at a movie theater. And then I was like, when I was got to that age, like, oh, so I went and applied. Like, oh, do you like working on the weekends? I'm like, no. <laughs> like, all right, I don't think this is right for you. I'm like, all right, I'll just keep going to the movies then. They run those ads now at like Regal that say, you know, we're hiring. Get your start in the movie business. <laughs> Like I don't think you understand how the movie business works. I do know I do know one person that worked at the movie theater, and now he's he's been a he's actually a documentary uh, uh, a journalist, a, a re- oh. reviewer, yeah, Chris Campbell. Um, oh, cool. Yeah, but I I remember he used to work uh, at movie theaters and stuff just to see all the movies, and I would always fight with him because we didn't agree on anything. <laughs> yeah, I mean. Those were the jobs, yeah. Blockbuster and like the movie theater movie and the record store. Those were the places I always wanted to work, and I was never a cool kid. And I feel like only the the cool kids got to work at the record store, and the weirdos got to work at the movie theater. Then I just didn't. I just had to work at my dad's restaurant, washing dishes. Well, I didn't even work. My parents were like, nah, you don't need to work. I'm like, okay. Ah, lucky. <laughs> so st- started a website up in, in my senior year of high school and haven't haven't looked back. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it's been that long. Since, since 90, 97, or ni- ni- yeah, 97 when I started my website. Wow. Yeah. It used to be it's called Scott Punk and Other Junk back then. Now it's Rejunk. But, um, so have you run into a... Have you run into a documentary idea that someone else claimed or that you wanted to do and then you had to scrap it? I mean, I guess the blockbuster was somewhat close to it. Um, that someone, well, someone was trying to do that for you, I guess. Yeah, no, a lot of people tried to claim it and I was just lucky to have started a year earlier and been able to basically just say that, hey, look, we're a year in, you can make yours, but ours is going to come out soon. So, yeah, kind of a good luck luck to you now that we've got some celebrities in it it's kind of solidified as like we're making the blockbuster documentary you can make a blockbuster documentary but it won't be and the same with the ska one you know yeah people can make ska in fact there was a guy working on one when we were working on ours and i i talked to him and said you know it's very similar and i'm not trying to step on anybody's toes i'm just yeah i'm passionate about this subject matter and to me, it was always like, I don't. it doesn't matter so much if there are two docs about the same thing. That's just more content for the people who care about it. Like, look right now, the Fire Festival documentaries, right. one on Hulu, one on Netflix. People are watching them both. If you watch one and it's interesting, you go watch the other one. Or if you only have Netflix or you only have Hulu, you still get to see one. Yeah, so, it's the same thing with everyone releasing a different version of Jungle Book in the last three years. <laughs> <laughs> right. Or uh, Deep Impact in Armageddon. Right. Um, 
these things happen. You know, there's been a couple of giant shark movies lately. The Prestige it's, and then Illusionist. Yeah. Both good movies. Though. Totally. <laughs> um, uh, Ants and a Bug's Life. Oh, well, Bug's Life. Totally. <laughs> the same summer, I think. Yeah. It's like, oh, two ant movies. Like, don't like studios talk to each other. <laughs> well, they do. And that's the problem. The problem is one person goes around and pitches it to everybody right. and one one studio buys it and then the other studio just says, well, we don't need to pay him. We'll just make our own. I know the Ants one just looked not as, that great. Pixar was. Yeah, but you know, Woody Allen. Right. <laughs> um, so is there any, so after these two movies, when they're finally done, which, I mean, what do you feel like tackling next? Do you want to stick with documentaries? Do you want to do like an actual like featured film? <laughs> Yeah, I've got some ideas for features. I've got some scripts, quote unquote, in development, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm working on a short that we're filming here in Bend in the next few months because I don't have enough going on. <laughs> uh, but I like making shorts. I like doing the film festival thing with short films. It's it's more fun. I, I kind of prefer short films to features in a lot of ways, both from making and watching standpoints. Okay. I think we live in the world of like ADD shorter attention spans. And if you can tell a compelling story in 12 minutes instead of 90, why not? You know, I also like the horror anthologies and stuff where it's 10, 10 minute films instead of 100 minute film. Mm. Uh, but I'd definitely be interested in working on a feature. I, I predict that, over the next two years, I'm going to be pretty wrapped up in these two documentaries. Once they come out, it becomes, you know, a year's worth of promotion and right. working on distribution and trying to get these films out there, which is like half the work. Half the work is making it, and then the other half is marketing it and doing all that. So when do you anticipate the pick it up and then the last blockbuster to uh, come out? Uh, pick it up. I'm really gunning for this spring. Okay. I think back to the beach festival what, or something. I, that wouldn't be bad. I, you know, it's still up in the air, although the lineup yeah. this year is a little bit less ska. Yeah. But one day is pretty know, good. Blink, and it's like blink 182 is headlining and we got Travis Barker in the movie. So I think their fans would. Yeah. I think, people I think would. blink 182 fans and ska fans have a lot of crossover. Yeah. I'm a, I was Especially, a fan. I remember seeing them first, my first warp tour in '96. They were playing in this little tiny stage. Yeah. <laughs> and then the next year, they're playing on a huge stage. Yep. That's, I guess how it goes yeah. if warp tour. But I think doing like a festival run this summer and and fall, and maybe getting the the Blu-rays out later this year, and getting all this Kickstarter stuff out to the backers. Yeah, I bought can. that shirt for Parker. Yeah. Parker's shirt that he did. I'm like, oh, I want to own something that he drew. <laughs> yeah, I'm so excited about stuff like that. That's what I mean about the Scott community being so supportive and everything. Yeah. It's just like tight knit, you know. Yeah, it's like it's one of the reasons why I still do my site. It's like I want to promote the things that I like and the bands and then the movies and stuff as well. So it's when you got a ska movie and like, I'm definitely going to go gun ho and promote the hell out of it for you. Sweet. Yeah. Well, I appreciate it. Every, everything helps, you know? And then, gonna... and then a blockbuster, you're thinking probably the, the end of the year or next year. It's, it's hard to say. Um, part of it is 
real time waiting to see what happens. You know, the movie's only as good as it's ending and they're still open right now. And, you know, Oh, so you're waiting for it to close. (laughs) Well, I'm not waiting for it to close, but there is a big company that owns the name that they have to license it from and their renewal comes up soon. And they, you know, there's at least a big, like, will they, won't they moment. Right. That we have to wait for. Cause if they do have to close in the next year, that's, an interesting ending. And if they get to stay open, that's also an interesting ending. Yeah. But if nothing happens, that's nothing. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe just wait it out, get more interviews. I'm sure. Yeah. And it's sort of building some momentum. We're kind of shopping it around to some of the studios and TV stations and stuff to see, you know, I think right now we're just going to put together a rough cut from what we have and see if we can't get it an actual release somewhere. All right. Um, well, so I there's no way of knowing. I can't wait for both of these movies, though. I mean, they sound both of them sound great. Right up my alley. Um, where can people check out? Like, what are some of your social links and websites and things like that? Uh, pick it up is just at Ska Movie on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And then Last Blockbuster is at Last Blockbuster Movie on all those. Because somebody already took last blockbuster trying to be a funny head. (laughs) All right. Well, that was great talking to you. Yeah, and we've got skymovie.com and lastblockbustermovie.com as well, which have links to all the social on them. All right. I'll be anticipating my T-shirt. And I don't know if I got the Blu-ray. I know I got the T-shirt, though. Maybe I got the download. That's what it was. Sure. (laughs) The download and T-shirt was very popular and. 2018 nobody wants a thing to put on a shelf they just want something to wear and to watch the movie well it's just space i mean i have two bookcases of just blu-rays sitting there yeah i like i i ended up doing last year and the year before that i ended up just like wiping out uh, like selling a lot of my my movies and then just putting everything on voodoo so now i have like over 900 movies in voodoo which i hopefully that never like it's walmart but hopefully it doesn't like uh oh, go so under risky. Or something. yeah it's risky yeah but well, it's a lot of money spent spent into it as well. Yeah. But they. Yeah. I did that too a while back with like Netflix. I was like, oh, I don't need this anymore. It's on Netflix. And then a couple of years later, Netflix right. pulls it off. I'm like, oh, I wish I still had those DVDs. Right. I just bought The <laughs> Office because I heard it was going to uh, gonna be going off Netflix. I'm like, and I'm just started watching rewatching it again. So I'm like, all right, it's on sale. So <laughs> cut The Office. So I've just been right. Well, that is the beauty of it. If you need to rebuy it, it's like a dollar now. Well, for old DVDs, at least at the, the DVDs, yeah. Here in the used bin. Well, that's the thing. I had them all. I I got them all sent to me for free, but then I'm like, you know, I'm like, what the hell uh. am I gonna do with all these movies? I I'm just selling them. <laughs> yeah, it's like I get some money for it, but it's like, it's like the, like you're not supposed to sell this stuff. I'm like, well, what am I supposed to do with it? <laughs> right. But all right, um, this is a good conversation. Uh-huh. Thanks, thanks a lot for talking with me, and uh, have yeah, a good day, man. For me. All right. You too. Later. Bye-bye.